Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in Harley Street, London. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Andrew Nagorski, who is the author of a wonderful new book called Saving Freud, A Life in Vienna and an Escape to Freedom in London. Andrew Nagorski is a, a, a well-known journalist. He was born in Scotland to Polish parents, moved to the United States as an infant, and has rarely stopped moving since, serving as Newsweek's bureau chief in Hong Kong, Moscow, Rome, Bonn, Warsaw, and Berlin. He's the author of seven previous critically acclaimed books, including Hitlerland and the Nazi Hunters. He now lives in St. Augustine, Florida, and continues to write for numerous publications. So welcome, Andrew, and thanks for your wonderful, wonderful book. So the title, Saving Freud, many people will think that this book is about saving Freud's reputation, because his reputation has been on a bit of a roller coaster ride, and he comes back, and he's in the news again at the moment, because I think a new film is about to be released um, about Freud. Um, but really, you're referring in a more pragmatic sense to the, the fascinating story of how he got saved from Nazi Germany and... Um, Austria had become a Nazi country, as it were, um, and that's where he was living. And in 1939, he flees to London. And many people don't know this 19, story. 1938, actually. Okay, flees. right. He dies in 39. He dies in 39, yeah. yes. Right. Um, so the fact he ends up dying in London, which is, given he spent most of his life in Vienna, is, is interesting and part of what this story is about. And I think what's particularly interesting is beyond all the books that Freud may have written and the research papers and the papers that have been written in the academic press about him, I think this story reveals a lot more about the great psychoanalyst and his psychology than uh, many people realize, which is why I found the book really interesting. But let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about this man, Freud. Tell us a little bit about the arc of his life um, and the, how he ends up becoming a, fa a famous psychoanalyst and the fact that how, what the role of Vienna, because Vienna is a big part of the story. How come he ends up living in Vienna? Tell us a it's bit about that. It's a huge part of the story. And, and I'd say, first of all, your point about Freud and his personality and how he developed is something, he's such an iconic figure that I think all of us, myself included, think that if we read a little about psychology, I'm not, not a professional the way you are, but I felt I had a passing knowledge and a passing knowledge of Freud. But until I started really digging into the research for this book, I realized I knew very little about him, the kind of man he really was, how he operated, where his roots, and then this whole story about how he is entrenched in Vienna even when, 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 when Hitler marches in with his troops. Uh, so I found there were lots of surprises for me personally, I think for the readers as well. But to understand Freud, you have to realize he was born in the middle of the 19th century in 1856. He, it's the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He's born in a part of that empire, which is now in the Czech Republic. But at the time, that, that matter, it was, it was a German family, a German-Jewish family. And he, he, when he's four years old, his, his family moves to Vienna, which attracts many people from all parts of the empire, but particularly a, 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 a large contingent of, of, of Jews trying to improve their lives in the imperial capital. His father's a merchant, and as he's growing up, he, he is thriving in this multicultural city. There is anti-Semitism, but it is not something that really hampers him in any way he feels. Uh, there are incidents. He always stands up to him. He never felt himself to be a religious Jew in any, in any way. He was a very much he was secular. He was, in fact, an atheist, but he did not. He never 
negated his, his Jewish identity. And, and in, in Vienna at the time, about 10% of the population was Jewish, uh, and quite a few of the, those people were very accomplished in the arts, in the sciences, uh, in various fields. And he, he became a, a medical student. At first, he thought he might go more in, the, in terms of public affairs. He diverts to medicine, discovers that's his calling, and he, and he eventually, but he is always, he's a very ambitious man, even though later when he gets, gets uh, engaged, he tells his, his, his fiance that, oh, I'm not one of these people who has to scratch, scratch my name in, on, on the rock of eternity, but it's, it's a little bit too much of a modesty there. He has ambitions, but he's, he's trying to figure out where in medicine, what could I do that will have some meaning? And at first he works in a lab, he's, he, he's a neurologist, uh, and, he, and he's fascinated by what are new trends of the day, uh, cocaine, which is seen as this wonder drug for a while, and he, he experiments with it with, on a friend and, with, and himself, and uh, then he becomes disillusioned with it, really realizing he had thought it could, be, it could cure his friend of, for instance, a morphine addiction. In fact, it was substituting one addiction for another addiction. And then hypnosis, he goes to Paris and he, and he, and he studies under uh, Charcot, who was a very famous uh, uh, physician at the time who had these great powers, of, seemed to have great powers of discernment when he hypnotized his, his patients. Uh, but slowly he evolves and, and begins to become more under the influence of people who, who are who are talking about the talking cure, which Freud eventually rebrands very successfully as psychoanalysis. Uh, and, his, and he begins to present his theories. Of course, the most famous one is the, 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 his theories about dreams, uh, which, which becomes his breakthrough work, although interestingly, very few copies are sold, but retrospectively you can see this really put on, on the map. So he, here's a man who begins to say, I'm going to get enough medical training to eventually go out on my own. And the reason, by the way, he went out on his own because he did not have much money, his family did not have much money, and, and the little bit of royalties he got from publications and so forth were, were not much. And he, well, and, and, and he became engaged to Martha Bernays, who is from Hamburg, and in order to, to start a family, he felt he has to move out of the family house and start on his own. And then he decides to prepare and work in a hospital. And so eventually he can qualify and start a private practice, which has a chance to support a family. So it's these very practical concerns that getting moving in the direction will have then become his very famous psychoanalytic practice, but which is regarded very dubiously by much of the medical establishment in Vienna at the time. So, uh, yes, I want to interrupt you there. Um, uh, a very eloquent um, uh, and concise uh, summary. But there's some really interesting things there. First of all, he doesn't just go straight into private practice, having qualified as a doctor. He's interested in the academic life. He's already a man who's interested in getting to the bottom of things and researching things. 
but he has to make money because he has no independent means. So he, the, the, the salary of a research doctor is a bit more precarious and not very good. So what's really interesting is the, the coincidence eventually of the fact that he is able to make money through a methodology, psychoanalysis, which involves research as well. It is a neat combination of the fact you're able to make money from this thing and also be a kind of research doctor without needing a research laboratory. So um, a lot of people may not realize that there's a sense in which it's kind of convenient that the whole uh, pioneering of psychoanalysis thing. What, what would you say about that? Yes, and, and he loved research. And in fact, as a 20-year-old medical student, he sent off from the University of Vienna to the Marine Research Laboratory in Trieste because there had been a claim by a Polish scientist that he had discovered how eels reproduce. Where are their reproductive organs, which was a great mystery at the time. And, and they send out uh, Freud as a 20-year-old medical student to go to this laboratory, dissect eels. He eventually dissects, I think he said, more than 400 eels before he said, oh yes, the scientist was right, I found the gonads. <laughs> and, and there's something to me very poetic about the fact that, a, that someone who becomes, becomes famous for his theories about uh, the, the sexual drives of, uh, of human beings and how that shapes their subconscious and, and conscious behavior, uh, starts his research finding the uh, you know, how, how, how eels reproduce. But anyway, he, he's a very disciplined man, and he's, he, you can tell that in any number of ways. Uh, from the very beginning, he writes letters to everybody. To between him and Martha, they had a four-year engagement before he felt that he, he could support a, a, a wife and family. And she was living mostly in Hamburg, he was living in Vienna. And they wrote, wrote about, he wrote about 900 letters to her. And he reveals his life and, and his aspirations. And with anybody who contacted him, this continued through when he became famous, almost anybody who contacted him got a letter in return and, and, and a thoughtful letter in return. So this, this was a man who liked the contact with, with, with people. He could be kind of gruff and a little bit uh, off-putting at times, but people who got to know him became very devoted to him. I, I want to pick up on that point, because a lot of the book, uh, uh, the content is a lot of letters that he writes, and the letters are beautifully written and also very thoughtful. And this is a man who is very thoughtful about relationships, which is relevant because in a way his therapy or his theory is about relationships and he's very sensitive and nuanced but he also falls out with people that are his supposed disciples and so on but the letter writing thing to what extent is that a freud thing or to what extent is that a, a symptom of his society this, the kind of culture he brought up in we're all sending emails to each other but none of them are as thoughtful and as carefully written as the letters that he writes is there something special about freud and his well i think writing? it's both and as someone who's written a lot of history I, I am very grateful for the fact that the history I write of people mainly in the first half of the 20th century, or most people wrote letters, and those letters reveal so much more, even the people who don't necessarily write beautifully or are, are necessarily very evocatively, but inevitably letters convey so much more, certainly than we, our emails, texts, and all this, and I, I sort of cringe for the fate of future historians trying to write detailed books where you get a real sense of the personalities and the flow and the interaction, which uh, I, I feel that handwritten letters uh, did 
to an amazing degree. And, and Freud is, I would say, exhibit number one uh, in, in this respect. And there's a link there with his literary ambitions in the sense that part of the reason he becomes famous, he writes case histories that have a literary quality to them. Um, and he has a sense of how to tell a story. But I want to stay with the letters for a second. I mean, they're very thoughtfully written. I think you don't get the feeling he dashed them off. I mean, I, I'm just amazed at how he did all the things that he did, given each of these letters must have taken hours, I think, to construct. Yeah, I mean, I think he was a pretty fast writer for just by the volume and the fact that he was writing every day and, and several letters. But it was also a, a product of his personality that he had everything arranged. He, 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 this was a man who, for his time, was seen as a revolutionary thinker. All these theories about sexual drives, about the subconscious and so forth, all these things which we take for granted, certainly people in your profession take for granted today, were, were shocking to many people and, and to many of the prof professionals particularly. Uh, so on the one hand, he's saying things like, I'm for a much freer s sexual life of the individual, getting rid of all these uh, the hypocrisies of society. But on the other hand, he's saying to people he knows well, but I haven't taken advantage of these things. He, he has a very conventional family life. He marries at a, at a young age, or he's in his mid-20s at that point, which is considered uh, you know, an average time to marry, for high time to marry for a male at the time. His wife is five years younger. He has six children almost right away. Uh, and he lives in the same apartment, has the same office across the way for most of his life. He's married until for, for 54 years, I think it was the total, until his death. And Martha Freud is the other who's often an underestimated character here. She comes from Hamburg, but, uh, but there's a family connection that her family had a, earlier lived in Vienna, so there was some interaction between the families. And in fact, her older brother had married Freud's sister. So there were, were all these connections. And Martha Freud ran the house with impeccable, you know, so her, her, her impe impeccable style and her, her, one of her sons said, you know, when she had to organize any outing, for instance, it was suddenly like the Prussian general staff was taking over and all the logistics were boom, boom, boom. And in that Freud household, everything revolved around uh, Sigmund once his practice got going particularly. And he you know, breakfast, it was at, at, I think, at 8. But before that, he got up at 7. A barber usually came, trimmed his beard, any, any stray hairs. He had, he had his very, his tailored suits. He thought a, a doctor has to be well. His son said he wasn't vain, but there was a certain expectation, and he definitely wanted that expectation. And then there were set hours for receiving patients, for lunch, for and then for letter writing, reading, strolls around the Ringstrasse, that that the Horseshoe Boulevard in Vienna, which which was actually designed when he was young and by Emperor Franz Joseph, and so this was a man who lived by by stuck to very rigid rituals and traditions, even while totally. Uh, shocking the world with with, with 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 his conclusions about what really drives the inner impulses of all of us. 
And this is also very interesting because, I mean, he developed a reputation for being obsessed with sex. That was the kind of, like, um, the way people thought about him, which is not entirely true. But he did locate, and this is why he broke with Jung and some of the later apostles or disciples, locate a lot of human pathology into um, sexual drives, particularly um, in adults, but also in, in, in children. Um, um, but the, the humanity... Um, comes over, but the paradox is that he sometimes writes very um, flippantly about his patients. You, one of the le- letters says, "I've got to see more patients now." I think there was, I think it was immediately after the war or something, and he said they're all nuts or something. He uses the word nuts. Yeah. I, I, I had to see some patients today; they're all nuts, that kind of thing. So there's a quite a flippant, dismissive remark. But on the other hand, there's a wonderful moment in the book where. Um, there is a um, mother writes to him about a homosexual son, and it's clear the mother wants the homosexuality to be cured. And Freud writes very poignantly and humanely, given this is 100 years ago, um, about, and say there's nothing wrong with being homosexual, um, and, and does it in a very forthright manner. And he would have known that the voice of the great doctor would have had a huge impact on this woman. But, but what, tell us, tell us yeah, a bit about I mean, that. I mean, what, if you read Freud's correspondence in, in, to various people, you come across with all those elements. One, there's there's there is a wit and sometimes cutting wit and sometimes a, yeah certainly not a politically correct wit. And today, you know, to say say uh, it's the only time in his correspondence I came across the line where he says I'm like, coming back from vacation in Italy and now I've got to see those nuts to to, to to make some money to pay for my vacation. That was that was a rare, but often it's a very sardonic wit. Uh, his 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 uh, he he knows that. People think he's obsessed with sex, but he, yeah, I think he he found that through these letters, through his sayings, he could he the humanity of the man comes through. Uh, and for instance, as you say, uh, how he dealt a couple of times with patients, and often it was mothers who would go and say, my son, can you do something? Basically his message was, even though he might put some things in terms about homosexuality that would today be considered very, very, no, you can't do it that way. He'd say something about possibly this is arrested development, possibly it's this, that, and the other, or society considers it a perversion, but it was clear he did not. And he said, he, he said, he said there have been any number of times I've had patients who would come in who I, I, either they or their, their mother usually had, were trying to get them to be treated to change. And in the course of analysis, they came to terms with who they were and no longer wanted to change it. And, he, and, and the message was, that's a good function of psychoanalysis too. This is not, don't expect psychoanalysis to change someone who, who, who in reality is a homosexual. Uh, and and, and if, if, if my, my therapy or thera- somebody else's therapy analysis can help someone come to terms with who they are, whatever they are, then, then that's successful psychoanalysis. What about the Jewish element? Because he's very, because um, this is very important because of what happens later on with, with the Nazi um, transition of Austria into a Nazi-type state and the Jews are, are persecuted all around him, yet he hangs in there in Vienna when everyone else, um, particularly with the means, would be, and particularly even he's, given he's a prominent Jew, uh, ought to be getting out. So the Jewishness thing, he's very aware of being Jewish, although, as you say, he's a kind of secular Jew, because he chooses his acolytes and disciples and is aware of the fact 
fact that a lot of them are Jewish. Psychoanalysis seems very Jewish at the beginning. Um, it's almost seen as a kind of Jewish type of profession, almost. Um, and all, interestingly as well, a lot of women are psychoanalysts. So it's, it's, a, it's very um, um, far-sighted and um, very modern in, in the fact that women are welcomed in and women become psychoanalysts, because at the time, very few women would have been doctors, for example. Right. Um, Although the first group was primarily male, yeah. and but then quickly yeah. others did. Yeah. Um, so he's very aware of, uh, and he was wanted, he wanted psychoanalysis to grow and spread around the world. And he partly, I think, and you must correct me if I'm wrong here, selected Carl Gustav Jung to be maybe one of his main disciples or the second in command at the beginning before they fell out, partly because he wasn't Jewish. And he felt um, that it couldn't, that the leaders of psychoanalysis could not be Jewish because then that would affect its acceptance in the wider world. Could you say something about yes. that? Yes, I mean, Freud had done well in Vienna, but he was very much aware of the anti-Semitism, and he was very concerned, his commitment to psychoanalysis, as you say, he wanted it to spread. He had this vision of it not just being a Viennese phenomena, but as something that would spread uh, all over Europe and America and, and possibly elsewhere. And he realized that given the extent of anti-Semitism, that if it was seen as only practiced and led by Jewish psycho psychoanalysts, then, then that, would, that would limit its scope. So for that reason, he, he did seek out uh, Jung. Uh, Jung also sought him out at first. And, if, and the other th thing about, you have to remember about Freud, is that he was very conscious of his own mortality. He kept obsessing about how long am I going to live? And even when he was in, a, he was in his uh, about 50, he was already thinking, I need to find a successor. And so at first, Jung was going to fulfill to, two roles. He was going to be, he called him the crown prince. He was, he was very impressed by him. He liked the fact that he looked, he had that very Aryan look. Uh, and... Uh, and he told his other, other followers, who some of his Jewish followers in Central Europe, who were saying a little skeptical about, about Jung, who was an outsider, uh, look, we need him. We need someone like him to present a different face to the world. And after he has his falling out with Jung, they were very two headstrong personalities and they had all sorts of clashes. Uh, philosophical and personal, uh, he then ends up eventually anointing Ernest Jones, who is a Welshman who, and, and also not Jewish, but a very different kind of personality than Jung, uh, very, and, and they, they really hit it off, and, and, and Jones, in effect, becomes, and then becomes the head of what becomes the International Psychoanalytical Society, and so all along, he's looking both for successors and for, for people to, to make sure that there is in modern parlance diversity in this group of professionals. So the Ernest Jones thing I want to come to, because I didn't realize until I read your book how important that element, the falling out of Jung, if it had never happened, and Ernest Jones didn't become the, the anointed son, as it mm -hmm. were, then Freud may never have ended up in London, actually. So a lot of history 
turns on this Ernest Jones story. Now, the, uh, before we get into Ernest Jones, the link between Ernest Jones and um, Carl Gustav Jung is both of them seem to have had some sexual trouble. Um, um, Jung seems, uh, I'll choose my words carefully here again, you must correct me if I'm wrong, to have slept around a bit. And and so so did... Uh, I, I think that's uh, putting it very, very cautiously. <laughs> okay. So, but Ernest Jones, on several, more than one occasion, got accused of crossing a line in terms of contact with women and he also patience in yes. particular and also he hung out with a with a woman as his girlfriend and pretended to be married to her for many years which had been quite a scandal back in the day yes. so um freud again going back to his benign nature seems to be very forgiving um of this kind of sexual indiscretion thing maybe too forgiving but that partly is why even though ernest jones has a the hint of the whiff of scandal around him um, is still allowed into the inner circle, as it were. Could you say something about that? Have I got? Yes, what I mean, I mean, what's that? interesting is so many of these people who are w- what I eventually call his rescue squad, who mobilize around him, patients and people who are patients or doctors themselves or uh, psychoanalysts themselves, have very active sexual lives. In contrast to to Freud himself, who who one of his American visitors called this this real Puritan uh, in terms of his his personal life, uh, and but as you say, because Freud was surrounded by people like that, patients naturally were attracted to him for re- reasons because they often had sexual problems. I think he he was not at all shocked by such behavior. Quite the contrary, and when it came to someone like Jones, who faced accusations on a number of occasions that uh, patients he was treating, particularly young patients here in London, uh, it, it, there was a it, Freud had a set theory for that, and it was called transference, which was that if you're treating a patient, uh, 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 usually uh, you know, w- women. Uh, young women, or, or even if not young women, uh, they will often transfer their their affection and desires to to the psychoanalyst. And 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 uh, Freud vividly remembered once when he was tra- treating a patient who suddenly threw her arms around his neck and really tried to hug him. And and he Freud, being as as sort of proper as he was in terms of in terms of his personal life. You know, it was it was very taken aback by that. But then he identified when 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 Jones was accused several times, uh, he always gave him the benefit of the of the doubt, uh, and also he sort of he knew Jones had a totally different life. He had he had a couple marriages. I mean, then some ended tragically because of the death of a young of a very very talented young wife, uh, and and he was non-judgmental on those things. So let's now go to the rescue squad because Ernest Jones is a pivotal figure. Tell us a bit about who Ernest Jones is. He writes, the, I think, the first biography of Freud after Freud's death. Yes. But also flies, importantly, to uh, Vienna to get help get Freud out. And, and, and this, this flight is quite dramatic as well. Although Freud doesn't fly out, I think he gets the Orient Express out. So tell us a bit about Ernest Jones and, and the rescue squad. Well, I think the most interesting thing about Jones, first of all, he he was he was in medical school and then a young doctor, and he starts reading. He knows enough German to read read a little bit of Freud in the original German, uh, at the time when Freud's writings were still not translated. And he becomes so fascinated that he gets himself a German tutor and really works on his German, and then becomes determined. 
he said he he he, he used the expression that something like here was uh, here was somebody involved in looking at the human mind who was really willing to listen to their patients, which was something again he felt was not in the medical tradition necessarily, where the doctors were telling the patients what they what they what ailed them rather than listening to all the signals and he said every signal was important and and he in fact the interest interesting jones first contacts jung and goes to his institute outside zurich and then gets jung to give him an introduction to freud and, and that begins their relationship and and jones who is who was a very, very uh, small uh, guy. I think he was five foot four or something like that. But he was uh, so one, of, one of the women working around him said he's irresistible to women. And uh, so he was a very sort of flamboyant figure, but incredibly hardworking. He wrote a lot, lectured a lot. Uh, he also set up a press in, in here in, in Britain to, to, to publish the translated works of Freud and, uh, and others. And to really, and he took to this mission that Freud, that Freud had of spreading the word of psychoanalysis. And Freud saw himself at one point, he said, as kind of a, a fisher of men, which is almost sort of yeah, Christ-like uh, terminology. Uh, and not, probably not coincidentally, because Freud also very, very much studied both the Old and New Testament. Uh, and he, uh, he, he was on the lookout constantly for, for new people who, who would spread that word. And so he, they develop a close relationship. They develop this international psychoanalytical society, international congresses. Uh, during, then World War I comes. Most of this, the, the people in Freud's circle are on the Austro-Hungarian-German side. Jones is uh, is is alone on the on the on the British side, but they managed to keep communicating through neutral countries, and and then uh, others come in, uh, people like uh, uh, Marie Bonaparte, who is from a rather famous name, great grand niece of Napoleon, married to the to the prince of Greece and Denmark so she's royalty she's got the Napoleonic lineage and also happens to have a lot of money she becomes a fervent support she first comes to Freud as a patient dealing with her sexual problems uh, and then becomes uh, becomes a, 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 a psychoanalyst in her own right and offers a lot of financial support uh, and then there's William Bullitt, who is a U.S. ambassador to France in the late 30s, but before that to Britain, to, to, I'm mean, sorry, to, had been to Russia and, and, and a famous journalist and writer. Uh, he had also come to, in the 20s to meet Freud to deal with his problems, a failing marriage and so forth, and they bond. And so these kinds of people sort of begin to get into Freud's orbit and so when in 1938, first of all, there, a lot of them are encouraging him to leave Vienna much earlier when many of his friends are leaving, his Jewish friends in Vienna are leaving. But they, they, he, he, he's resistant at that point. He's in his first in the late 70s, and by 1938, he's, he's over 80. He's, he's been, been battling cancer of the jaw based on his famous cigar smoking for, for years. 
And he just doesn't, he's thinking, I don't want to go into exile. I see, despite everything that's happening, unless the, the Hitler moves in his troops and does a complete takeover, I'm going to hold out until, until the end. But then Hitler does exactly that, annexes Austria. And even then they have to, they have to then really scramble to get him out, to both get the, convince the Nazis basically to bribe and the Nazis to get him out. And then they also, Jones becomes pivotal in not only convincing Freud finally that the moment has come, you can't, you can't delay anymore, but also he comes back to Britain, lobbies everybody to get entry permits for Freud and, and a huge, his family and a, and a whole entourage, which was an incredible feat in those days because at that point, Britain and, and almost every country outside uh, in Europe that was not controlled by Germany did not was did not was not putting out the welcome mat for for Jewish refugees coming from the Third Reich. So um, we want to leave maybe because we we're running out of time a little bit. The the thrilling um, story, which is in the book itself, of how exactly it gets out because it reads like a thriller, and I'm sure you're going to sell the film rights to that because <laughs> it's a fantastic story. But I want to just dwell on one thing. One of the really interesting challenges about your story is here is a great psychoanalyst, a person who has made a reputation of having deep insight into human nature, seems to be completely blind to something that's going on all around him, which is the rise of fascism and the fact it's not going to end well if you're Jewish and you should get out of Austria. So there seems to be an incredible blindness to something that's going on all around him. So that raises a question as to how insightful a man was Freud. And I'm going to challenge you. I know there are various explanations as to whether he really was blind or, or what, why he stayed. But also, he also seems remarkably passive in that I think it's these friends that get him out, right? Not him that, that gets him out. So oh, yes, very much so. So, so um, tell us, well, let me put those two challenges to you. There's the great psychoanalyst who people go to for help. Yet in the end, he ends up being a rather passive character. And in, in, a way, in a way, I think your story of your book is he's saved despite himself, actually. Um, and, and the other point about him being blind to something going on right in front of him. Well, I think it's always hardest to apply whatever lessons of life you've learned to yourself. <laughs> it's easy to impart them to others. Uh, and I think all the factors that you mentioned at that point, his age, his illness, his just, and also the kind of the rigidity of his life and conventions in Vienna that show that he was a man of such set habits that the idea of upending and emigrating, he just did not want to confront that. But, and he, in theory, understood that, you know, the brutality of man, the, the, the horror that man, I think he became very disillusioned during World War I, where at first he was just sort of a traditional, kind of Austro-Hungarian citizen who believed that the empire could survive, and then he realized this was a, 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 a tragedy on a huge scale of, uh, on all sides. And he wrote this, this, this masterful work, Civilization and Its Discontents, in 1930, which talked about the sh that, that, uh, how people could inflict the greatest horrors on each other almost more than any animal would ever do. But when it came to its own situation, I think he just wanted to keep his head down and say, let's get through this somehow. And I, 
I think it's, it, it, there's a moment, there's often a, a moments in our lives to a lesser extent than that drama where something is happening that's changing the world around us and, it, and we're slow to react. I, mean, I lived through, I was a correspondent in, in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe and in, in the 80s. And I would like to say I, 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 I knew that that whole world would collapse at the end of the 80s. No, I mean, I had ideas that the system was very weak and, and if for all the terror it could impose, it was also going, had, had the potential to implode. But nobody quite knew when and how. And, and, uh, and then when you have to make decisions about your own life based on how, how bad is it going to get, especially if you have all these what he's considered to be incentives to try to ignore some of those. Yes, I mean, to me that just shows Freud was imminently fallible. <laughs> uh, and I think he realized that too in the end. And it's interesting that the, the key element that finally the car, key argument for him to getting out was, I think in a way, if it had just been him, and I think he said pretty much this, uh, at his age, he might have even stayed until the end of his life, which would, might have been ended by the Nazis rather than by, by natural causes. But his daughter, Anna, who's one of the main characters in this book, his youngest daughter of six children, had lived with them, was totally devoted to them, who later became a very famous child psychoanalyst in her own life, right? she was not going to abandon her, her, her mother and father, particularly her father. And he knew she had a, few, a considerable future ahead of her, but in order to, for that to happen, she had to get out. And one thing to realize, and something most people don't know, is Freud had four sisters who were still in Vienna at the time. He had a fifth sister who had moved to the States when she was very young, but but four sisters, and they all stayed behind. And I think they probably, there's some confusion, it's not quite clear whether there just wasn't time to organize their escape, their, or whether they resisted. Freud left money for them, thinking they needed to provide for them. All four of them died in the Holocaust, in the camps. So uh, this is, no matter, even if your name was Freud, there was, there was no guarantee you would survive, you survive the Third Reich. But he, I think he, until the last moment, kept, kept hoping it, were, it would be possible to, until he realized he was putting the life, particularly of his daughter, Anna, in danger. Um, and again, there's so many things I want to ask you, although I know we've taken up too much of your time already, but one, a really interesting thing that comes out in the book is the cost of getting out was oh, very, yeah. very expensive. I think it was like a quarter of his fortune was spent, something like that. I can't remember the exact number. Yeah. And it's a wealthy person who pays for him uh, to get out, and uh, actually Freud insists on paying that person back, which I thought was very sweet, actually. Yeah. So it, was says, it was Marie Bonaparte who right. provided, actually, both... Marie Bonaparte, who was very wealthy, and William Bullitt, the U.S. ambassador of France, was from an old Philadelphia family and had a lot of money, and he offered to, to pay. But basically what happened was that the Nazis, in those early days when, they, when the Germans did, when, when the Nazis took over Austria, and they singled out Jewish families, and they weren't quite clear, were they going to let them out, were they not? The idea seemed to be Let's, let's have our guys extort as much money as possible from them and then maybe let them out. 
but there was no guarantee in that process. And when it became came down to to a, to a high figure, uh, they, as you say, they estimated his overall wealth, and that was a very they rounded up considerably in terms of what they thought everything was worth. And they came up with a figure which was something, I think, in, in dollar terms in those days, it was something like $50,000, which probably if you, which I think someone calculated if you put it in today's terms, would be close to a million dollars because in terms of prop, property and rights. It's, anyway, if you take a quarter of that, that's still an awful lot of money. And it was Marie Bonaparte from France who put most of it up. She had it on hand. She, she actually came to Vienna too at the time actually to, 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 to make sure he got out. Bullet was in Paris and he offered some money, but it was well, he wasn't as close by and she managed to do it. And she, had the, and she also had diplomatic status, so she could stash some of his papers and valuables in the, in the Greek embassy and then smuggle them out. So it was a, a whole operation, but it was very mercenary, of course, at first from the point of view of, of the new, new regime. And a lot of people don't realise that he came to London and um, he died here. A lot of people, I think, don't realise that. They so strongly associate him with Vienna. And there's the famous Freud Museum, yes. which is where the, the, the house that he lived in. There was another house in Primrose Hill. I'm going to go and look at the address because it's a famous address, actually, uh, that he stayed in temporarily before moving to Maresfield Gardens, which has become an iconic uh, address in, in, in the Freudian pantheon. Um, but he carries on seeing patients here in London. I found that amazing. Because yes. his clinical practice was in Vienna. How come... And it's a tough question to ask you right at the end. But, I mean, amazing that he actually saw patients in Mearsville Gardens. And, it, in fact, this famous couch is there. In it Mearsville is. Gardens. He managed to get out. One thing he managed to get out in paying these exorbitant bribes, effectively, they managed, uh, again, it wasn't him so much as Marie Bonaparte, Anna Freud, and, and others managed to arrange to get his couch out and some of his, a lot of his famous artwork he loved. Greek and Roman statues and, and that, that thing. And, and, and he really wanted to keep seeing patients, even when he was very frail. Uh, and, and he did so almost until the very end. And remember, at this point, patients had been lining up trying to get in to see Freud for years at that point. He becomes such a, such a celebrity. Uh, and so there was no lack of, of patients in waiting. Uh, and he, he couldn't see all of them, but he saw quite a few. Andrew Nagorski, I've taken up too much of your time. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, the book is entitled Saving Freud, A Life in Vienna and an Escape to Freedom in London by Andrew Nagorski. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.